welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're featuring guitarist Mary Halverson. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of High Action. We are so thrilled you are joining us for our 20th episode. How about that, John? 20 episodes of High Action. What do you think? Ah, feels like just yesterday that we were opening the Logic Sessions and getting rolling, and here we are. We're veteran podcasters now. Yeah, we've reached the 20th episode, and it's a great one. We have the wonderful Mary Halverson as our guest on this episode. She is a tremendous artist, a brilliant guitar player, very, very smart person. Uh, Will, it was pretty cool getting a chance to interview her. You had some great questions for her. What was some of the... takeaways that you had initially with her? Well, just getting to hear about her background and developing her sound. And and it is really cool how she has such a blend of the... She really does have a traditional jazz guitar sound in this completely different context. Yeah. And it, it just yields such cool results. And I mean, I liked... I really liked when she said, you know, whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing musically, make sure you really believe in it. I yeah. mean, that's, that's beyond... Tr- the truth. That's it. That's totally it. Yeah, boils it right down to the most important thing. Uh, speaking of important things, I've been thinking a lot about sound uh, lately as a guitar player. I think part of what has changed for all of us as guitar players due to COVID and social distancing is we're not playing with people in the same kinds of ways. We're not experiencing playing in ensembles the same kind of ways. We're playing from home more. And we're playing solo guitar more. We're playing in just smaller groupings more. And uh, Friday night, I did like a duo thing that from my house, like a live stream thing from my house. And then Saturday, I did like a session with a bass player and a drummer. And just the difference of volume was so huge. And I think it really is an important question that I wanted to pose to you guys because as guitar players, you know, dealing with volume really changes your tone. It really changes your sound. And, you know, when we were talking to Mary, she was talking all about how the fact that she never practices with an amp, you know, she usually practices acoustically and works everything else out on stage with an amp. But more lately, I've been feeling like, man, you got to practice with an amp. You got to practice at the volume that you really want to be playing at to deal with your touch. So story, let me throw it to you. I mean, what do you feel about this difference with volume and acoustic and how you get your sound. I mean, it's it's particular to everybody, but we might be kind of dealing with some of these challenges more because we're not playing with the same kinds of groups we were regularly, you know? Yeah, and I like using big amps. I, I have a Viberlux, which has two speakers, and I really love tube amps that have multiple speakers in them, especially with my L5 or my Marquion or the Tele or the 335. It just really uh, makes the sound big. And with my living situation, I'm in an apartment and one of my neighbors is cool. The other one's not really cool. So I have always struggled with getting a good volume in my apartment. And that's why I've been loving the Strymon Iridium recently. I feel like I can really get the feeling of playing with an amplifier where the touch kind of matches where, you know, where you dig into, to the point of, of letting the amp 
kind of do the work for you. Um, it's kind of been an experiment in my tone because there's so many parameters when you're dealing with a digital interface and, you know, you get into these, just the nth degree of high end versus like a Fender amp just naturally has a certain high end and a certain mid range, which we all love or we're all used to. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I've been just kind of honestly trying to get my tone really dialed up with the Strymon interface and um, it's a really a pedal. Yeah. And honestly, my amp has just not been getting really much work this year. I mean, a few times I've gone in and done some sessions and it, it's taken, yeah, a bit of adjustment. And it's kind of like, whoa, there it is again. There's the feeling of playing with, yeah. with a bigger um, amplifier. So I, unfortunately, I don't have a situation where I can be really playing at at level volumes with an amp every day. So I'm just trying to take advantage of, of what I've got right now. And I'm also working on an acoustic record, so which doesn't involve the amplifier at all. Right. So. <laughs> so just for the listeners, the, the, the Strymon interface you're talking about, you're putting that into your computer, you're putting that through Logic, and you're hearing your sound mainly through, through headphones, or are you yeah, hearing it through your speakers? Well, the Strymon Iridium also has a headphone jack, so you can plug headphones right into it, which okay. is really cool. And uh, yeah, I'm running that into my um, AD converter and then running that into my DAW. And I just set up a pretty clear track. And then, of course, there's parameters you can adjust within your, mm -hmm. within your audio workstation. But the Strymon is really set up to be like a Fender-style amp with a room knob mm -hmm. and all different speaker configurations. And I'm a pretty traditional guy in the past. I haven't really ever had much desire to really get delve into that kind of gear but man it's honestly i i can't see myself going back in terms of home recording right now i know will you kind of you were you you and i talked about this this Dude, pedal early on too so great i have it i've i've been recording my an album on it too actually the exact opposite of yours only into logic electric and i have it set for at least for this album like i've got the sound there um, I love it, man. I, I think, I think we all have to just get more comfortable interacting with technology and, uh, shout out to the Strymon Iridium. <laughs> Strymon Iridium. Wow. I feel like I'm missing out. I got to check this thing out. Although I've been getting really good sounds that I've been happy with using that, my amps here at home, getting good mics on them, being able to work with some good mixing techniques and things like that on Logic. I think part of the reason I wanted to pose the question, though, was because depending on the volume you're playing at with a box, especially with an archtop guitar, it really changes your touch and like maybe where you might pick on the instrument, how you might play, how the instrument's going to respond. If you're playing at a quiet volume, a lot of the little subtleties can come out. At a louder volume, a lot of those subtleties aren't there and and the guitar tone can kind of get out of control it can be hard to cut and so it's something that i've been experiencing uh, as a result of the social distancing is like you get together and play with a drummer and you're like whoa this feels totally different now oh yeah you know? so, well you know pete bernstein who was one of our earlier guests on high action he talked a lot about how he felt like it wasn't necessary to practice with the amp at home because you weren't really getting the volume that you're playing in a in a venue. But for me, it's not just about volume. It's also just, I love hearing the warm sound of the guitar. I like kind of being near the amp. Um, I love that story George Benson talks about when he's like 12 and his uncle was playing guitar and he used to lean up against the amp because he just loved the feeling of the amplifier being on. And he was, he was almost, George said he was in love with the amplifier before he was in love with the guitar. I think that's kind of a cool That is thing. cool. 
you know, and Hendrix too, Hendrix's famous quote, I don't play guitar, I play amp, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> kind of a cool That's concept. Good. And I love amps. I'm an amp gearhead and we love Hendrix and, and I love that sound too. It's a different kind of vibe. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I am looking forward in the, hopefully in the year when we can get back to playing more live stuff, I am looking forward to having my amp back. But for now, I'm just kind of looking at it as a study in how can I get a good sound and a good response with this kind of stuff because it is pretty interesting when you remove the feedback equation when you're playing through headphones. I can really run the volume as hot as I want. So you have to kind of find that fine-tuning spot of what it used to feel like playing mm -hmm. with an amplifier. And for guys like us who are workhorse musicians who are gigging hundreds of dates a year mm -hmm. usually, you can kind of figure it out pretty easily yeah. where it is. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's even more impressive that our guest, Mary Halverson, talks about never practicing with an amp. And then when she's performing, she's getting kind of a still a cool kind of acoustic sound from her box, but she's also utilizing a lot of effects and a lot of pedals to, to a great extent. And for the listeners out there, if, if you're not familiar with Mary Halverson, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. She's a brilliant person, fantastic guitar player, very kind-hearted person as well. And so I think without further ado, we should jump right into this episode. Number 20, please enjoy this with the wonderful Mary Halverson. Hey, Mary, how are you? I'm good. How are you? So good to see you. <laughs> hey, Mary. What's up? Welcome. Welcome to our little Zoom hang. Great. I'm going to put you guys in gallery view. That's okay, right. Go. That's right. Got to get your settings. <laughs> uh, you doing okay? Everything going well? Yeah, it's as good as can be. Good. Um, are you in Brooklyn now? Or are you somewhere else? Or where? Uh, yeah, I'm in Brooklyn. Sweet. All right. Well, I don't know if we've ever met, but I know we have a lot of friends in common. Yeah. I was trying to I rack know, my it's, brain. It's weird how that can happen. You can just kind of miss people yeah. <laughs> for long periods of time. That is true. Okay. Well, we're rolling, John. You're also rolling the backup. We're rolling in Burbank. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right. All right. Here we are on the High Action Podcast. We are joined with Mary Halverson. Uh, thank you so much, Mary, for making some time for us today. Uh, it's really an honor to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes. And for anyone who's listening that doesn't know about Mary Halverson, first of all, you should crawl out of the rock that you're under. But secondly, <laughs> uh, let me just tell you, she's one of the most exciting voices in jazz guitar today. In 2019, Mary, you were awarded with the a MacArthur Genius Grant for your music, which is really exciting. Not too many guitar players that I know have uh, been awarded that honor. And it's well-deserved. Your compositions are so interesting. Uh, your playing is, is really creative and unique, and uh, it seems to blend a lot of different influences that I want to talk about today. Things from jazz, of course, but also rock, classical, different avant-garde, folk music, and, and beyond, I'm sure. Uh, you could elaborate on that. We're specifically kind of highlighting a new album that you have from your band Code Girl, Artlessly Falling, which is really terrific. I've, I listened down to it recently, and I was uh, really blown away by a number of things on the album, but the compositions really resonated with me in an interesting way. 
I uh, was kind of hoping just off the bat to talk with you a little bit about that process. Uh, one of the things that I found really fascinating about the album is that the compositions are tied to these different poetic forms. Mm -hmm. And you wrote the words that became the lyrics that I think ultimately framed the song. And sort of my first question for you was, you know, what was that process like? Have you written poetry before? There's, there's a natural connection to poetry and music. And, you know, what was your experience like in that world leading up to this project? Well, I should say first that I'm a complete amateur when it comes to poetry, but it's something I've always been peripherally interested in. Mm. Um, probably going back to college, I would just write little experimental poems. And over the years, I've experimented very occasionally with writing song lyrics. Um, and part of the reason for that is because a lot of the music I listen to has singers and lyrics, and a lot of the music I played is not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I was trying to think about that discrepancy and why is it that I listen to so much music with words and play so little music with words. So I, I was kind of interested in trying to bridge that gap a little bit and have a project uh, which wasn't instrumental. Um, so this is my first time actually writing for a dedicated project with a, a singer I've attempted singing myself a, a little bit over the years. I'm a, I'm a horrible singer, but <laughs> but it was it was kind of fun to experiment with that. But to get to write for a real singer was was actually it was a different thing. It was it was a really fun challenge, and I think it it, it allowed me to do more with, with the writing than if I had been singing it myself. Yeah, absolutely, and and uh, it really brings a kind of a great sort of feeling of weight to these compositions because these lyrics are, are deep and they're about important things. And uh, I'm still kind of processing some of them, trying to get into them. I know on the uh, record you include some of the lyrics for people that they can actually read along when they check out the CD, which I think is a cool thing. It reminds me a little bit more of the process or the experience of listening to a vinyl album when you've got the record jacket and you can kind of fully immerse yourself in the music in ways that you don't often when you're just clicking some YouTube link or some Spotify link. So, yeah, totally. you know, having the, the text or the lyrics to go along with a project is really cool. So thank you for doing that. Cool. Yeah, I think that's that's one thing that I'm, I'm sort of lamenting about the digital music age. Yes. Is that when you just, you know, click on an album, you know, you're looking at a JPEG of the cover, but it's if you're interested in, oh, who's playing on this or, or, you know, where was it recorded and when and all this kinds of, you often have to then go Google it or, or something. I mean, yeah. so I, I miss that thing of actually having liner notes and having all the credits and having a, a physical product to, to look at. I, I want to dive deeper into it and, and play some tracks, but I'd, I'd also like to get into your background a little bit more. On this podcast, we really try to get to know the player behind the instrument. That's that's one of the themes of our podcast. And you know, you've described your playing uh, as a as a neutral vessel. And I read this quote that you had in, in an article about saying that the cool thing about the guitar for you is that it's not associated with a particular genre. But it, you know, it, it could be jazz, it could be classical, it could be rock and roll. And that really resonated with me because I've always been into guitar players of all different styles. And I'm wondering if, if that's kind of how you felt when you were coming up, when you were starting out. Did you get into guitar through you know, a bunch of different styles, or was it one player or one style that really got you hooked on the instrument when you were starting out? 
Well, it definitely wasn't jazz. <laughs> um, that came later, but I, but Jimi Hendrix was really the first guitarist was... I heard that got me excited about guitar. I mean, I guess how could he not? Yeah. <laughs> um, there's just you know such a magic and electricity and energy to his playing. So I guess I stumbled across Hendrix when I was maybe 11 or 12. Oh man, yeah, and, nothing um, like it. And this was in uh, Massachusetts, right? You were born in uh, Yeah, I grew Brooklyn. up just outside of Boston. Excellent. So that was, I mean, that was really for me the first thing. But I also really liked the Beatles, and um, I was really into the Allman Brothers. Okay, um, cool. So it's really more coming from uh, different kinds of rock music and, and also more folk music. Yes. Uh, as, far, as far as guitar. Well, it, yeah, we, we are kindred spirits in that sense. I, I grew up into being into like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and oh, folk yeah. music Nirvana as well. was huge for me as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was all the way on the West Coast. You were all the way on the East Coast. It's so interesting. Uh, you credit uh, an early teacher of yours who I'm sort of interested to find out more about, a, a gentleman named E.C. E. Rosen mm -hmm. as one of your early teachers. And I don't know much about him, uh, but I have a feeling that he had a, a big effect in your area. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of those early lessons with him and how he was as a teacher for you? Yeah, I mean, he's amazing. Um, he's a jazz guitarist. He taught, I don't know if he still does, but he was teaching at Berkeley and, and taught a lot of lessons around Boston. And somehow, you know, what I had said to my parents, I want to take guitar lessons. And somehow he had been recommended to my parents. Um, so I didn't know anything. I didn't know much about jazz or whatever, but he just started teaching me jazz. So I started learning from him. And I mean, he was an incredible teacher. And I probably studied with him weekly for, I don't know, six years, probably like the end of grade school yeah. through high school. Was he really organized for you, like a method type of teacher? Or was it more conceptual, more, you know, just sort of playing, learning by root, so to speak? I think, you know, it was pretty organized. It's funny you mentioned him because I had just been thinking about, um, I watched the, uh, the other night, Ben Monder did a, a solo set stream from the Village Vanguard, which I watched. And then I, I remembered EC, he, he had this little notebook, you know, so this was probably, he probably didn't have a copy machine at this point. So he's going to teach me a tune. He would write it out by hand in the notebook and I would learn the tune. Right. Um, and I still have that notebook and I had stumbled across it the other day and, and he had written down for me to check out Ben Monder and Kurt Rosenwinkel, <laughs> you know, and that was probably when I was 12 or 13. So I had found that. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that's neat. Um, but he was, he was great just, you know really patient and thorough and he would just write out different songs for me you know it's i think starting with beatles songs and things like that chord progressions and then we got into playing jazz standards so he'd you know he'd write out the melody and the chord voicing for me and we'd go over things and um he, he was a really great teacher and and probably single-handedly got me into jazz and gave me the inspiration to want to continue with guitar He's a great guitar player as well. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I love hearing about these stories from players that have really developed their career. I love hearing about their kind of early influences with their teachers, because uh, I think that has such a huge, huge uh, influence on us. Even as we grow into our careers, those early years with those teachers, that, that foundation is so important. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think about that a lot. It's, it's really everything, you know, having a, a good teacher. Because I had EC, and then I, I studied at Wesleyan with Anthony Braxton and Joe Morris. And right, I wanted to ask you. so inspiring. I don't think I would be a musician mm -hmm. if it weren't for those people. Right, yeah. Not only inspiring me, but also giving me confidence to 
to actually go for it. Yeah, that's so important too. Just, you know, people who are good mentors that will encourage you and give you the confidence you need to kind of go into this crazy career. Um, exactly. Because it does seem crazy. <laughs> it does. Yes, it does. Especially these days. Goodness. Well, I wanted to ask you about being at Wesleyan and, and studying with Anthony Braxton, obviously, you know, amazing saxophone player, legend in the jazz world. You know, what were some of the things that you picked up from him right away? Because I gather that they were pretty influential for your direction and kind of where you've taken your artistry. Yeah, I mean, the main thing for me was when I started studying with him and learning his music, it, I realized that music was much more than I thought it was. And, and the possibilities within music were much larger than I had previously thought. Mm-hmm. And that it that you could really try anything or do anything. You know, here's somebody I'm, I'm 17 years old meeting him and he's writing pieces of music for three orchestras on different planets connected via satellite and, (laughs) you know, pieces for a hundred tubas. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, there's, there's so many things you can do. Yeah. And he was just, I don't know if any of you have ever met Anthony Braxton, but his energy is just infectious. Um, you, you meet him for five minutes and you, you feel like you're on top of the world. I mean, he's so yeah. inspiring and encouraging and just being around that was, was pretty amazing. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And uh, I think he's also a, a MacArthur Award winner as well, which is a cool, yeah. it must, must be a cool connection that being his former teacher, you've really followed in his footsteps in such great ways. Well, from Wesleyan, you, you moved to New York, I take it, and, and you started kind of recording your first albums uh, sort of mid to late 2000s on Firehouse 12. I think your first release was called Dragon's Head, correct? Exactly. I moved to New York in 2009, and that's sort of when I first started hearing your name and being able to check out some of your music. Uh, one question I had was about sort of having this original progressive voice in jazz you know it can be kind of hard at first you know when you're starting out in the scene not to necessarily fit into the box of jazz so to speak did you feel certain pressures to sort of try to fit in in places that you you know necessarily where your art wasn't going did you feel those pressures in New York and was it hard for you at first to kind of uh, survive while also trying to produce your art was that challenges that you faced early on in New York Probably in, in some ways, but I think the cool thing about New York uh, or being a musician in New York is there's so many different kinds of music happening. Mm-hmm. And that was actually something I enjoyed was not feeling like I had to fit in with one particular group of people or one tiny little niche of music. Mm-hmm. And I think I've always made a conscious effort to not get boxed in to, to one narrow area. And that's such a great place to do that in because the scene is so big and you can just go check out any kind of music on any night. But at the same time, it feels like a small town and, you know, you're bumping into people, you know, on the subway. So I think there's simultaneously a real sense of community, but also a sense of exploration. And, um, I've always really tried to not be boxed into one thing because I'm, I'm interested in so many different types of music. And I think that's a big part of how I've grown and continue to grow as a musician is by working with people across all different areas of music. Kind of thinking beyond what I'm hearing you say, sort of thinking beyond the mainstream jazz scene or the mainstream jazz track, so to speak. Yeah, that I never really pursued. I mean, I I studied jazz, but at a certain point, I think I realized that I wasn't going to be a a straight ahead jazz player. And I, I think 
around the time I was studying with Anthony Braxton, I was, I was more interested in, in kind of more experimental avant-garde kinds of music. Not exclusively, but I was definitely doing more stuff in that direction. I was never too concerned with becoming, a, for lack of a better word, straight ahead right. jazz guitar player. Right, right, right. Although I love that music, and I actually, to this day, practice all the time. I'm practicing jazz standards and things yeah. like that. Today's episode of High Action is brought to you by AEA Ribbon Microphones and Preamps. AEA has been manufacturing high-quality ribbon mics under the AEA name since 1998. But prior to that, all the way back in the 70s, Wes Dooley himself, the founder of AEA, began servicing the old RCA 44-style ribbon microphones, which had been heavily in use since the 40s and 50s. Wes's uh, knowledge of these microphones, plus new advances in technology, allowed him to develop the AEA product line. Currently in New West, we use the uh, N22, the N8, even mics like the R88 and R84 from time to time. But all across the board, the entire product line is amazing. We absolutely love his microphones. So if you'd like to learn more about AEA ribbon mics or to purchase one of your own, visit aearibbonmics.com. Um, let's talk a little bit about the new album. Again, it's terrific. Uh, it features a wonderful cast of, I'm going to see if I can get these names right, uh, Amitha Kidambi on vocals. Amirtha, yeah. excuse me. Uh, Michael Formank on bass. Tomas Fujiwara on drums. And Toma. I know these names Toma. are tough. And Adam O'Farrell <laughs> and Maria Grand on, on tenor saxophone. And also the legendary British musician uh, Robert Wyatt. And did you set. get Adam O'Farrell? I'm, I I'm did, yeah, Adam, the tr- on yeah. trumpet, right? Yeah. Wonderful cast, really love this CD. I'd, I'd like to play a track off it called uh, Muzzling Unwashed. I think it's the fourth track on the album, and then we could chat a little bit about it on the other side. So here we go. This is from Artlessly Falling, Muzzling Unwashed. Thank you. 
Yeah, Mary. Very cool. Very cool yeah. stuff. Thanks. Sounds Sweet. it sounds so so good. Uh, can we dive in a little bit to your compositional process? I'm really intrigued by it. Are you more of like a you know pen and pencil type person, and you kind of get it down that way? Or are you trying to put stuff into logic more and finale, and use sort of the combination of technology? What's sort of your the process when you begin these tunes? Um. Well, with this one, I have the lyrics first. Right. So I so I finish the lyrics, um, and then I'm I'm usually I'll print them out. I'll be looking at them, and then I'll just start improvising on guitar, and and I'll sing. Usually I'm singing, and and I'll try to come up with you know melodies that that fit with the words. Um, so often, I'll end up writing a guitar line first, and then once I have something. I like, then I'll kind of write it down, usually pencil and paper, pencil and then paper. I'll move it into finale. And probably the, once I have the initial idea, the bulk of it, I'm, I'm probably writing in finale and then I'm adding other parts. And what about your editing process? Like, do you, do you go through some of these songs that take weeks or months sometimes to finish them? Are you listening back to things? How does that process work for you? It's hard for me to get started, but once I get an initial idea, I try to write very quickly, and then I'll kind of go back and, and tweak it later and kind of fine-tune it. But I, but I think I like to try to write it quickly, just train of thought, because um, I feel like often the, the first idea that pops into your head is, is the strongest one. So without worrying too much or, or being too self-conscious, just get as much stuff down as possible mm, that's good and then i can kind of go back and and revise it but I, but i tend to write pretty quickly once, once i get going the lyrics on the other hand take forever that's a whole but you know i've that's very new to me so i don't have as much of a process writing music i think i i, I almost have a system that that works for me right so speaking of the lyrics so the album is connected to these eight different poetic forms and not knowing much about these poetic forms, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about sort of the meters that you were dealing with with these lyrics and maybe how that influenced, you know, the music for you. Yeah, I think a lot of these forms are inherently musical. So a lot of them have rhyme schemes, which is which is kind of fun. Mm -hmm. um, the other album I did, it was just totally free form. So there wasn't much organization to it in terms of the the written content. With this, I was sort of forced to fit words into these specific forms, which for me was was really cool because it kind of makes you make creative choices that you might not otherwise if you didn't have the restriction of a certain meter mm -hmm. or a certain rhyme scheme, things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So with this one, which is a villanelle, certain lines repeat at different points throughout. So there's a lot of repetition, and then also it's like a... I guess an ABA kind of a, a scheme. So there's there's six stanzas in the poem. Mm -hmm. uh, the last one has an extra line, and then I just tried to write the music around that. And with this one, because it is pretty repetitive, what I tried to do was it, it basically follows the same musical form, but it gets a little more complicated as it goes. So I was adding in more accents and offbeat rhythms as the poem develops. So it it starts almost with the basic structure, and as it in the first verse and then by the time you get to the sixth verse there's all this kind of extra stuff happening in the music but it's still following the same meter it's terrific you know the notion of poetry and music together it's like i said i've always been into folk music i got into music through bob dylan and peter paul and mary and oh, yeah. that's all just beautiful poetry set to music and you're doing that in your way uh it's really fantastic the album's tremendous. I recommend everybody go out and check it out. But let me just pass it off here to John's story. I know he has a few things he wants to ask you about. 
Cool. Hey, Mary, nice to finally meet you. And thanks for joining us on the High Action Podcast. It's a real honor to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me on it. Of course. I first checked you out um, when I saw the Tiny Desk concert, actually. This was a number of years ago now. I know John Arabagon and uh, Jonathan Finlayson were playing with you. Such a dynamite band. The performance just it just blew me away. And I, I went back over the years. I've gone back and checked out that performance a number of times. I just, it's so, so great. So it's finally great to get to chat with you. The first thing that really intrigued me, of course, as a guitar player is, you know, myself, Perry and Will, we're all big archtop guys. I mainly am on my L5 almost all the time. Perry and Will are 175 guys. So I just yeah. absolutely <laughs> love that you're an archtop player. Woo! Yeah, <laughs> uh, and because it's so rare, and as we all know, it's a difficult instrument to get um, a consistent sound out of live and recording. And mm-hmm. it's a beautiful instrument to sit at home and play on your couch. But the minute that you're in a venue some, with a big amp, sometimes it can be strange. Yeah. So I've read a little bit about how you chose the artist award, and that it was a teacher that recommended you get that guitar and you found mm-hmm. that instrument. You picked it up right away. Those Guild Artist Awards have kind of an interesting neck. They're a little thinner than a, than a Gibson. Mm-hmm. Um, when you played that guitar, when you picked it up, did it right away feel like this is the sound I'm looking for? Or was it, wow, this is such a beautiful guitar. I can't wait to get this and go home and figure out what this thing does. I think it. it's funny you mentioned about the neck. I love the way the neck feels on that guitar. So I think I was probably 20 when I got that guitar, but I think I picked it up and right away... It was it was a recommendation from my teacher, um, Tony Lombardozzi, who was teaching guitar at Wesleyan. And he said, you, you know, you got to check out this guitar. This is the perfect guitar for you. And I saw there was one for sale in New Jersey. I drove to New Jersey, played it, and it, it did feel like that. Um, I don't know what exactly was going on in my 20-year-old brain, but it just felt like, yep, this, this guitar feels right. Yeah. And I, I had really wanted an arch top. Well, two things that I love about that guitar. One is its size. It's, it's just this massive guitar and it has such a powerful acoustic sound. And to me, that was important to have, um, to have just a, a really strong attack. So you can really hear the wood and, and all the, the resonance of the instrument itself. Um, and I also love the pickup on the guitar, the DeArmond pickup, which they don't make those anymore, but, um, it's just such a warm sound and so I found with that guitar, it's it's pretty easy for me to plug into just about any amp and get a decent tone. And there are exceptions, but, you know, touring around, I don't travel with amps generally, which I'm sure you guys don't either. So to feel fairly confident that whatever they give me, I'm going to be able to get some kind of sound that I'm I'm happy with on the road. That that's really nice about that guitar too. Like I really trust that guitar to to pull through. <laughs> yeah, and you know one of our one of the former members of the New West Guitar Group, um, Brady Cohan, he has a seventy Artist Award. It's oh, exactly wow. like yours, yeah. except it's an eighteen inch. It was oh, one of the wow. five they made that year. And he's in the process, I talked to him yesterday, he's in the process of finding an original DeArmond pickup for it because his got the pick guard got removed on it. It's a beast of a guitar and that neck feels so good. And um, yeah, I've seen you, I've seen videos of you playing through a Princeton and all that. And I can and with all the effects that you can use with that instrument, are you still experimenting right now, especially while we're at home? I mean, it's been kind of fun to be home and to go back over and experiment with some new sounds yeah. um, away from the stage for minute um are you still experimenting with ways of amplifying that instrument miking that instrument as you know there's so many cool ways to capture a lot of different sounds on that guitar and your music to me 
just like screams a lot of extreme for me. And I love that. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of extreme in that, in that instrument, the extreme acoustic sound of it. So I was curious if you're experimenting with some of those sounds right now. You know, it's funny. I pretty much never practice with an amp. I never have. Um, and I still don't. So most of when I work out in in terms of effects and and amplification, I'm usually doing that if I'm just getting together, improvising with people or if I'm playing a gig, but when I'm home, I, I only play acoustically, even though I could, I could use an amp here, but I think I like just, just focusing on, you know, whatever nerdy stuff I'm, I'm working on. And I will occasionally, like if I get a new pedal or something, I'll, I'll, I'll set it up and, and play with it. But yeah, it's funny. I, I mostly just completely work that out on gigs, but I think that's also because I'm not, it's not something I'm looking to change. Like I kind of know what, what sound I like to get out of an amp. So that, that just kind of, I, I guess it's pretty set. <laughs> Got it. That, that really answers my question too. Cause I always wondered if like that sound, cause it's a really cool sound you get. So I just, I, it feels great to get to talk to you about this today. I want to pass it off to Will and we all have more questions for you. Again, this is just a delight to talk to you, Mary. So, uh, Will, your turn, man. Hey, Mary, how's it going? Uh, good, you? Uh, good, good. Um, I, I can't resist. I have to piggyback off of John's gear question. Mm-hmm. I saw that you have this uh, convertible guitar. Yes. By Philip Scipio, I believe. Right? Philip Scipio. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. We're just... <laughs> I've a, I've, I, I like to surround myself with people with difficult names. <laughs> um, what a cool instrument. And like, like the, the first photo I saw, like it like fits in a, uh, like a box. Yeah. It's so this, amazing. This, was, this came from me being so sick of, um, as I'm sure you can all relate <laughs> yeah, to, we of know flying how that feels. With, with a guitar. Yeah, hate it. Um, like I would start to get nervous about 24 hours before I had to go to an airport. And then, you know, it's like any step of the way they can stop you. They can stop you at the check-in desk. They can stop you in line for security. They can stop you when you get to the plane and they always tell you it's not going to fit, you know, even if it clearly does. Um, but to me that was getting worse and worse. And then I saw all these upright bass players having removable necks on their bases. And I thought like, Oh, I should do that with a guitar. I mean, some people do it, but I think it's much less common for people to have removable neck guitars. Um, so flip Scipio is a, he was a friend of a friend and I knew he was a really brilliant guitar builder. So I just asked him, I was like, do you think you could build me a guitar with a removable neck? And he said, well, I've never done that before, but, but sure. (laughs) And he actually, I mean, he did such a good job. The thing is, I guess that there's actually a gun part in it, which the the mechanism that bolts the neck to the body. And then you just take an Allen wrench and turn it and the, it opens up and you pull the neck off. I put a capo around the neck so I don't have to restring it every time. And it fits in a little suitcase. It's like a, I actually do check it. Right. Um, Right. But it's like, What's great about it is it's a regular square suitcase, so I just check it. They don't have to bring it to a special place in the airport. You know, that's usually where it gets lost. They have to bring it somewhere else because it's oversized, and then someone forgets about it. So I just check it in this um, little square suitcase, and it takes me about three minutes to put it together. Right. And, um, cool. and it ha- also has a Diarman pickup, the same um, pickup that's on the Artist Award. Because Flip used to work at the Guild Factory before he was a. Oh, okay, an yeah, yeah. I'll get off as in a sec, but I have to ask: Do you bring like a a soft case to like put it in so that once you're 
at another region, you can keep it assembled. Exactly. I have like a very flimsy um, nice. gig bag that I just fold up and put in my regular suitcase. So then if I'm, if I go somewhere, I just set it up, you That's know, and so then I can cool. just carry around the guitar without bringing the flight case around. Us, us three are fascinated by that because we <laughs> definitely know the stress of oh, traveling man. internationally with <laughs> guitars oh, that worst. mean the world to us. It's yeah. the worst. It's really, it's not, and you know, they, they, they just don't care. If it was golf clubs, they, they would let you do it, but they don't <laughs> <Right>. like guitars. <laughs> um, I wanted to also ask your, your insight on, you know, you as when you're curating your own music and you're finding venues that really fit for you to share your music and your concept, have you found, I'm sure being in a place like New York, there's, there's, there's a lot of culture for accepting what you're playing, which isn't always like the typical vocabulary of what you would hear. But if you're traveling internationally or, or booking shows internationally, um, what, what are some venues that have really stood out to you as being really welcoming for, for you, for what you do? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Cause it's, it's always different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in a lot of the travel I do ends up being in, in Western Europe. Mm. Um, and I think overall, I think a lot, you know, like a, a country like Germany, I think there's actually a really big audience for more experimental types of music and, and you mm-hmm. feel that people really get it and are really listening. Um, but these things can really vary from city to city, town to town. You know, I've definitely mm-hmm. had gigs could be anywhere, any, all over the world where I sit down and you just feel like people are looking at you like you're absolutely insane, which maybe I am, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's, I, I try to not worry about it too much. You know, sometimes you can, you really feel like you have a highly specialized audience that's already really educated and, and kind of what you're doing and they already know your music and, um, and then you can play, you know, like for example, I played at Atlanta jazz festival, which is a free outdoor festival, mm-hmm. um, where I was probably clearly the most experimental thing on the festival. And it's just all these families, you know, sitting outside on the lawn and they have no idea what they're in for. Uh-huh. Um, so those kinds of situations can be fun too. Yes. You know, there's a lot of people are always going to, they're going to get up and leave, <laughs> which yeah. is fine. And then, but then you might get people that have never heard anything like that before and really love it. So I think it's, it's always a mix of, of those things. And I think playing music that, that can be challenging, you know, I've come to expect that, that there's going to be a mixed reaction to it. And so being comfortable with that and just, you know, as long as you're playing something you believe in and then just kind of trusting that it's going to come across in some way. And then you, you've also played at the stone in New York a lot. Mm-hmm. And how has playing at a venue like that, uh, you know, multiple times where, where you feel you're immediately comfortable after maybe playing there two, three, four times, how does that positively affect your connection to digging deeper into what you want to share? Well, I think that's a perfect example because it's, it's really, it's a true listening space. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, there's no bar, there's no reason you would go unless you were interested in hearing what that music is. And it's, it's John Zorn's club and he really created it so that people have a, a place to experiment and just do exactly what they want to be doing with no distractions and and to try out new projects, new ideas, new concepts. And, and so it always feels like a really welcoming 
place to do that. Um, it's now moved. It was on the Lower East Side, mm. Avenue C and 2nd Street, and um, now it's in the lobby of the new school, which is a very different environment. Um, so it's in this glass box theater. It's really nice, but it, it doesn't have the same DIY kind of feeling that it used to. Right. Yeah. But it still does have that feeling that, you know, again, there's no bar. People that come really want to hear that. Um, so over the years in both locations, um, that's been a space for me to, to really try out new things and, and new projects. And usually you have a whole week and, and John Zorn wants you to that do something different every night. He doesn't want you to do the same project for five nights. So you're sort yeah. of forced to say, okay, well, I have these two bands, I'm going to do that. And then these three other nights, what's something I've always wanted to try that I haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, so John's been really nice to give me a week, I think just about every year. So I've, I've been able to use that as a, as a way to, to try out a lot of new stuff. Yeah. Venues like that make all the, all the difference for, for developing, you know, a, for a deeper connection with your art. Uh, one more question about getting back to your composition process a little bit. Um, you know, we're all three composers and I, I think there's so many different ways to compose, but something I struggle with is, like I can often take a long time to compose a piece, but it can be hard for me to compose something quickly. If like, if I feel, if I really care about it, there's always like more that I want to dig into. I mean, maybe it's easier if it's like, okay, it's an A, A, B, A form, but do you ever mess around with that? Like trying to limit yourself to composing quickly or do you, do you never bother with that or just let it be as long as it needs to be? In terms of like the length and of the actual piece, uh, more more on the amount of time it takes you to compose it. I definitely set goals and and certain limitations for myself when I'm writing, but usually that is not one of them. Usually, I uh-huh. just let it. You know, if, if it's it taking forever, it it's going to take forever. Or if it takes me half an hour and I'm done, I try to be like, okay, I think I'm done. I think knowing when when yeah. it's done is often really difficult. Um, but and I'll like set seconds. other kinds of limitations, like. Um, I'll kind of look at the body of work and say, you know, everything has been within 40 BPM of the same tempo range. So I'm going to challenge myself to write something really mm-hmm. fast or really slow, or, you know, I'll, I'll notice like, you know, we all have patterns or things we're doing over and over again. So I'll try to think about what those are and how I can create a piece that'll be contrasting. So usually I think about things like that, but the actual time that it takes, I don't, I, yeah, I haven't usually sure. said I just wanted to for that. Thought I'd ask. Well, I'll, I think I'll pass it back to Perry, but it was great, great chatting. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad that you asked her about the stone, Will. Uh, and, and Mary, I know that, you know, being a New Yorker, you know how important the stone is to the music scene here in New York. And yeah. just as a jazz fan and a player myself, I just think it's so important that these venues, and I hope they survive for throughout oh, this I challenging time. But to have venues that are really dedicated to a, a particular area of jazz, I think is really important. Like obviously the stone is really different than smalls in some ways. There is some overlap, but they kind of tend to have some differences in where they're programming to say the least. Mm-hmm. But it's good that these places exist because it allows the music to breathe in these different directions and musicians to kind of keep creating in these different directions of jazz. So it's, it's just so important that these places exist and there's less places like the stone than there are, like smalls, you know? So I, I, I'm just glad to that we can kind of honor that place a little bit here. Uh, I wanted to dive into your uh, playing a little bit more. 
there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. First is uh, your sort of pitch bending uh, signature move that you do a lot. I hear it all throughout this album, and it's it's really cool. We were talking a, a little bit about about it before you came on the podcast, trying to wonder about exactly how you're manufacturing that. Are you using like a Digitech whammy with that? With like, or are you using some different kind of expression pedal to create that pitch blend? What's sort of the it's, process um, on your board? It's a line that? six delay pedal. Okay. And then I have an expression pedal for that. So, so basically what that sound is, it sounds like a whammy bar or a pitch shifter or something, but it's just the delay time knob on the line six, but, um, manipulated with, with, with the foot pedal. Right. So it's basically going from no delay to a little bit of delay. It goes like, Rrr. yeah, I've, you have the old DL four line six is what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. I've, I had that pedal for many years. I still have that pedal. Yeah, um, it's a great pedal. I know. I, I loved it. And yeah, John, who's known yeah. me for 20 years plus, it seems you remember how long I had that pedal. I would never get rid of it. And it took I, up so I, much I space on my board. I've broken like three of them. <laughs> yeah. Like they, they don't, they're kind of like play school, like my first delay pedal, you know, like they just, <laughs> <laughs> and then you go to Portland and you find these four hundred dollar delay pedals and you're like, whoa! You know? But man, that DL four sounds so good though. For what they it, sound really I mean, good. It does yeah. sound great. And so yeah, I thought you were using an expression pedal, but I couldn't tell Mary if it was you know from the Digitech or something else. So I'm glad to know about that. Another thing that I wanted to ask you about specifically is um, your comping. Uh, one of the things I've always been drawn to your playing with is how you really accompany. Uh, the band that's happening, the band that you're creating, whether it's the solo by Jonathan Layson or John Rabagon, you have such a great way of comping behind uh, those players. Who are some of your influences when it comes to comping like that? It's not like a straight-ahead style of comping. So how how are you sort of thinking about that? Who are some of your influences in that regard? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> or if, if there I mean, isn't anyone, that's I mean, fine. It's probably partly, um, part of it is probably coming from, you know, more uh, traditional jazz guitarists, you know, people like Jim Hall or um, mm -hmm. Johnny Smith is is the nice. jazz guitarist I've been completely obsessed with recently. Nice. Um, but part of it, I think, is just trying to not think of it as a traditional comping role. So, you know, thinking of, of trying to add more sonic or textural elements, uh, behind a soloist, um, or even lines or little motifs. So not only thinking of it as, as playing chords behind somebody. Um, and that, I don't know, I don't know if I can point to, to a specific person that's coming from, but I think just kind of all styles of, of, more experimental jazz and kind of seeing what what different guitarists do and i think this is an example of what we were talking about before where guitar is really shape-shifting mm -hmm. so you're able to get so many different sounds out of the guitar um you know just trying to be sensitive to what the soloist is doing and um and try to add something that will not get in the way but but also might provide some kind of a, a pad or a another layer or another element yeah, you, you, it's really beautiful the way you accompany the band and, and kind of help build the soloist and, and take the momentum up. Uh, it's, it's really wonderful. So I encourage people to kind of be listening for that when they're checking out your album. Speaking of that, can we play another track from the album? Sure. Okay, <laughs> I'd love to uh, play, I think it's the second track from the album. It's called Last Minute Smears. And uh, this was sort of 
a response that you had uh, from the Brett Kavanaugh hearings in uh, 2018, the Supreme Court justice. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about that after we listen to this track. This is Last Minute Smears. That's, nice. that's Maria Grand, right? She sounds, yeah. sounds really good there. Sounds terrific. <laughs> the whole band sounds great. Um, you know, that's an interesting track. I like the way it sounds, but obviously it's about something that uh, was, was just really kind of devastating to witness uh, for everybody. I'm speaking about Brett Kavanaugh's uh, confirmation hearings. Uh, I, I wanted to kind of talk about that subject slightly. It can be kind of a delicate or loaded subject to talk about, but, you know, for me, and I think for most people, it was just pretty disgusting to kind of witness that and to see sort of the lack of respect for Dr. Ford and yeah. to just hear uh, a bunch of men talking so irresponsibly and dangerously about, you know, the rights of a woman. Uh, and, you know, here on the High Action Podcast, we're definitely trying to be on the right side of progress. And, you know, as sort of our politics relates to the microcosm of the guitar world or the jazz world, you know, I'd love to kind of hear your perspective on sort of the things throughout your career in regards to sort of supporting and elevating women in music and in guitar, you know, kind of how have you seen those things improve if you feel like they have throughout your, you know, kind of young career and where are some things that you'd like to see things change, you know, that, where would you like to see things kind of continue to improve more, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think I should say in terms of 
women in music and women in jazz specifically, I've definitely seen a lot of progress over, you know, my 20 year career, I guess you'd say. Because when I started out, I never met another woman playing jazz guitar. Um, So I had I had a couple female role models um, who, oddly enough, were both saxophone players. Um, I had two. I did. I played saxophone for a little bit in high school and I had a a uh, female teacher, Diane Wernick in, in Boston. And then when I was at the new school, um, Jane Ira Bloom was one of my teachers and she was phenomenal. But, you know, I, I was always the only girl in the band, you know, and, and I think um, I was lucky that I had a lot of really great male role models and people that were always so supportive and respectful. So for me, it wasn't a big issue. That being said, you know, the fact that there's so few women doing it is a problem. Um, and I think for me, the, the best thing to do is just to be out there doing it and to, you know, try to highlight women who are doing it. I think it's changed so much. You know, these days I probably play in most of the bands I'm in have women or, you know, it's, it's not unusual for the band to be half women. Um, and I think for me, that's just happened naturally. I think there's more and more women doing it. And then you see that momentum the more women that are doing it, the more young girls are going to say, oh, I could do that too. Or they're going to be more inspired to start out because they're not going to think it's a boys club. You know, I think it takes time for these shifts, but I've definitely felt a a real momentum shift in that regard. And I work with a ton of women now. So that's also nice for me just to have more diversity in in that regard um, in bands and projects. And, um, and yeah, so it's, it's great. Absolutely. It does. And I mean, there's still work to be done. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about that now with, with my teaching, um, because I do have more and more female students, but still most of them are male. Um, so, you know, I've, I've definitely tried to encourage and support young women starting out, not just on guitar, but, but any instrument. Do you think that technology and kind of the sharing of, you know, things like Instagram, being able to check somebody out really quickly on their music, do you think that's helped young women kind of get into guitar because they can quickly see more examples of people, whereas before maybe they didn't have access to that information as easily? You know, that's a really good point. I never thought about that, but probably, yeah, because it would be easy for you to just say, oh, what what women are playing this instrument or doing these kinds of yeah. things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's That's definitely one... Um, good thing about the digital age, I think, is just access. You can check out anything. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, maybe there is more availability of just checking different stuff out and, and seeing the diversity of things happening. When I was growing up in the Bay Area, kind of in the 90s, I was fortunate to study with a great guitarist named Mimi Fox, who you, you may have heard oh, of yeah. before. Uh, we've had her on this podcast as well. And, you know, just want you to know it's very true with her as well. Like the students that I've had who have been young women, I've been able to point them to you, Mary, and to Mimi, just to give them a little bit more inspiration, maybe that they won't necessarily find in uh, seeing a guy play the guitar, just so it connects with them in a different way. So yeah. certainly what you do has a lot of meaning for not just people who enjoy music, but I would imagine young women that are interested in getting into it. So I hope you feel like some gratitude from that, you know. Cool. Yeah, for uh, sure. I do have another uh, track from the record I wanted to play, but we can't let you go before we ask you about your action. <laughs> High action. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> well, I was wondering. What about your setup? What can you tell us getting nerdy about the guitar? How do you like to get that 
you know, resistance going or what level of resistance do you like from your instrument? Um, I do like pretty high action. So this is the right podcast for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I think, you know, to get like a really strong attack, I I do like to, to have that. I don't want the guitar to be unplayable, but I want to, um, I've always had probably reasonably high action. Um, and, and I, you know, I use, 12s um i like fairly thick strings and uh, you know i like to feel like i'm there's a, a real physical element to to the to the to the attack and the sound of the guitar yeah that's beautiful well, i can hear it in your playing you have a, a really nice acoustic quality that comes through in your sound uh it's 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 great for everything you're doing and uh, it's well represented on this beautiful album artlessly falling uh, i'd love to kind of wrap things up a little bit by playing the first track off the album, uh, playing at least a, at least a portion of it here. Uh, this is called "The Lemon Trees." This is from Mary Halverson's "Code Girl," uh, "The Lemon Trees." <laughs> Really beautiful. Yeah, that's the yeah. first track. It's terrific throughout. I recommend everyone go pick up Artlessly Falling uh, from Mary Halverson's Code Girl. Really terrific project. Mary, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on High Action. Oh, man, this was super fun. So thanks. And it was so great to talk to all of you. Well, oh, yeah. I hope you're staying you know, safe and staying positive throughout these challenging times. Uh, I, I know that things will get better and uh this too shall pass, as they say. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Sooner than later, hopefully. All right, well, we will see you later. Thank you so much, Mary. Have a great day. Thank you. And uh, be well. All right, take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash Group. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast.
Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.